If you have your Bibles with you, you can turn to Matthew chapter 5. We're continuing this morning uh, the series that we've been in for the last six or seven weeks, uh, going through the Sermon on the Mount. And we're continuing this morning to look at the Beatitudes. And so we are in Matthew 5, verse 8. And this is what Jesus says. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Let's just pray before we dig into his word this morning. Heavenly, Heavenly Father, I pray that you would ready our hearts now. I pray that you would ready our hearts for what you want to say. Will you want to speak to each one of us? Father, we thank you as always that your word is living and active. That when we read your word, it reads us right back. That it directs our steps. And it encourages us. It exhorts us. And it rebukes us when needed. Father, I pray for each of us here this morning that we would have a, a heart open to hear. We need your word, Lord, and we need your spirit to speak to us as we unpack it this morning and allow it to go deep in our hearts and change us. And so, Father, I pray to that end this morning that your spirit would have his way in our hearts and in our lives. In Jesus' name. Amen. You know, in Exodus 33, there's this story of Moses when he's up on Mount Sinai and he's interceding to the Lord for the people of Israel right after they had created the golden calf and started to worship the golden calf. And, and while Moses is up on the hill meeting with the Lord, he requests something very significant of God in Exodus 33, verse 18. Moses says to the Lord, please, show me your glory. And to this, to this request, the Lord responds to Moses. And he says, I will make my goodness pass before you, and I will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But, he said, you cannot see my face. For man shall not see my face, shall not see me, and live. This favored man of God, Moses, could not look directly upon the Lord and live. And this inability for man to see God is echoed in other parts of the Old Testament as well as in the New Testament. Paul says in 1 Timothy 6, verse 16, says, when describing God, he says, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. The Apostle John in 1 John 4.12, he says, no one has ever seen God. And so think about Moses' experience when God says, you cannot see me and live. What Paul says in 1 Timothy and what John says in 1 John and then Read again Jesus' words in Matthew 5.8. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. 
Now, there's obviously some explanation that's needed to remove this, this seeming contradiction. But before we, we get into the weeds on that, let's just take a moment and consider what Jesus is saying in this beatitude. You know, we can read some really significant things, some magnificent things in God's Word, and, and we can miss the glory of them. We can just kind of scoot right by them because we read them so quickly as though we're reading any other kind of magazine or newspaper article or book. But this is one of those declarations in God's Word that if we read it correctly, it should absolutely floor us, especially when we contrast it with Moses' experience or those other places in Scripture that says nobody can see. God. We need to pause and experience the awe of what Jesus is saying in Matthew 5.8. And I think what we have to recognize is that to see God is the pursuit of all religion. That is the pursuit of all religion, to see God. That is the end goal. And not only that, But it is a pursuit that comes not just from a want to see God, though we do want to see him, but fundamentally it is a pursuit that comes from a necessity that is in every single human heart. We need to see God. And what I mean by that is this. God created human beings to be in a relationship with him. God created every man and every woman to worship him. This is the ultimate purpose of the human heart, to behold and to glorify God. That is our ultimate purpose, and that is a purpose that has been wholly lost because of sin. When sin entered the world, our relationship with God was destroyed. We rebelled against him and ceased giving him our ultimate affections, and we destroyed the relationship that we had with our creator. And with turning away in sin, we lost more than we realized we lost everything. We lost our ability to satisfy our hearts with the only rightful focus of our worship. The only thing that could satisfy our hearts is the Lord himself. And what all of humanity needs to have their eyes open to is that sin is real. That sin caused our human hearts to rebel against our creator, to not give him the glory that is due to his name. And what every single person suffers from, one of the great and awful effects of sin is that while it causes us to rebel against that which satisfies us, it does not erase or override how the Lord created every single one of us. And though we have rebelled against God, though we have turned away from him, we have continued to long for and try to lay hold of and worship whatever we think will satisfy our hearts in his place. Because we were created to worship. Ever since the fall, human beings have been trying to replace God and have been laying hold of lesser things trying to fill our inherent, fundamental, God-created need to worship. Every single heart chases after the fulfillment of this need. Most people are just blind to it. They don't realize it. And so when I say seeing God is the pursuit of all religion, 
I think it is right to say seeing God is also the pursuit of all human beings, whether they realize it or not. And let me explain what I mean by that. When I say seeing God is the pursuit of all religion, I don't just mean Christianity. I don't just mean man-made religions like Hinduism or Islam. You see, one of the misunderstandings of our culture is this belief that religion is reducing its hold on society. And while that may be true of what would be viewed as traditional religions like Christianity, the fact is that religious pursuits are actually increasing in our society. Maybe not in churches, maybe not in mosques, but in movements that would never identify themselves as a religious movement. You see, religion is defined in this way. It is defined as a particular system of belief and worship. Or it can be defined as a pursuit or interest to which someone ascribes supreme importance. So now take those definitions. That religion is a, involves a system of belief. That it has a particular being or thing or ideal that is worshipped. And it ascribes to that thing or that being or that ideal supreme importance. This describes perfectly so many movements and so many groups that we see in our culture today. They would never consider themselves religious. But they have a clear system of belief. They have a thing, whether it be a being, a goal, or an ideal that is worshipped, and that thing has supreme value and importance to them. Why is that? Because the human heart needs something to worship. The human heart was created to worship. It needs something to lay hold of, something ultimate, something bigger than itself. And in each one of these movements, as in what would be described as traditional religions, the ultimate pursuit is the same. Whatever that movement views as its highest purpose or highest pursuit becomes its God. It becomes what is worshipped by those who are a part of it. Since the fall of man, the human heart has been an idol factory. We have been trying desperately to set up false gods to replace the one true God, substituting the creator for the created, finding new and creative ways to reimagine old idols. We see it all throughout scripture, whether it be in the form of the golden calf that they created at Mount Sinai, whether it be the desire for comfort when the Israelites were brought out of Egypt and they started moaning and complaining in the wilderness saying, well, at least back there we had food and we had shelter. We want comfort again forgetting that they were slaves, or the pull of pleasure like with Solomon pursuing hundreds of wives and concubines that led him to go after foreign idols, or having a self-serving ideal like the Jews believing that the Messiah who was going to come was going to be this military Messiah that was going to free them from Rome and set up a earthly kingdom and rule. We've seen it in every culture since, including our own culture, whether it be the worship of self, the worship of personal autonomy, believing I am the highest pursuit, my happiness and my feelings and my desires are what matter most, 
whether it be sexual identity, which has become an idol. Our culture has created literally dozens of categories for sexual identity so that individuals can fit where they feel like they want to fit. And we've included a plus sign just in case someone else wants to create a new category for themselves. Race has become an idol in our culture. Gender has become an idol. The ability to kill innocent boys and girls in the womb is an idol in our culture. All of these are very religious movements and attached to them have this religious ideal. And all of them have an ultimate pursuit that they believe is God. So we must see then, as followers of Christ, that when Jesus says, blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God, he's addressing something that every single heart, whether knowingly or not, is in pursuit of and has a necessity to achieve. See, as a follower of Christ, when you consider the false gods that are being pursued as individuals and groups and movements try to fill the void that sin has left, and you think on how those affections and how those pursuits will ultimately end up if they are not renewed through Jesus Christ in the power of the Spirit by the one true God, it becomes both deeply humbling that the Lord has birthed in you a new and proper pursuit through the gift of grace, and it also becomes pressingly urgent to respond to the call of Christ to go and make disciples so that others may go from death to life in him and worship as they were created to worship so that they may see God. We can't approach this beatitude or any other beatitude academically. To see God, to see the true God, the one who created and rules and reigns over all, is a real need of every single heart. To see God ultimately means being back in right relationship with him, being restored from sin, being justified by the Lord. And the result is obtaining eternal life in his presence. And this can only be received through Jesus Christ. The the alternative is a life chasing idols trying to set them up in God's place that ends in judgment and separation from God, never getting to see your creator face to face. This is not something that we can consider academically. It is a real need of every heart. And so that now that we've considered that, we've framed that properly, Let's consider what this beatitude ultimately means. Let's let's remove the tension that is present when Scripture says no one can see God, and yet Jesus says the pure in heart will see God. And then I want to focus the rest of our time understanding what it means to be pure in heart. So let's remove this contradiction first. The seeming contradiction that's present here can be removed easily when we consider that there's different uses of the meanings and meanings of the word see. And the texts that I quoted employ all of the different meanings of this word. And I want to consider just three meanings of this word that'll give us a picture of what we're talking about. The first meaning of the word see is to physically look upon something. Just like I am right now, I'm looking out and I am physically looking upon each one of you. And so in this sense, we cannot see God because God does not have a body. 
God is spirit. And so we cannot physically see him. First Timothy 1.17, Paul says, to the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. And so the first meaning is to physically see. We cannot physically see God. He is spirit. He is invisible. The second meaning of the word to see has to do with presence. We must be present to look upon someone. If I was at my house, even though I don't live far away, I wouldn't be able to look upon you right now. I need to be present with you so that I can see you. And so when scripture says we cannot see God, it's because of our sinful nature that we cannot be in God's presence. He is set apart. He is holy. No human alone, apart from the mediating work of Christ, can see God. Because we cannot dwell in the presence of holiness and live. This is why Daniel, when he saw the vision of the Lord, he, he freaked out, thinking that he was going to die. He says, I'm a man of unclean lips. I, I, live apart, apart of, or I live with people who have unclean lips. I can't look upon you and live. No person can. And the third meaning of the word see has to do with our ability to perceive. To see can refer to our ability to perceive something or understand something. And again, in our sinfulness, we cannot perceive God. We cannot perceive the things of God. Our minds are unable to grasp the truth of God or recognize and understand the ways of his kingdom. And so it is right to say that no one can see God. However, when we come to faith in Jesus Christ, that all changes. And so let's consider them again from what we know to be true about those in Christ. Because faith in Christ means that we've received new birth, that we have become a brand new creation, that we, knew, we have a new heart and a renewed mind. We receive the Spirit and His power within us. And the result of that is the ability to then perceive rightly the things of God, to perceive rightly the kingdom of God, to be able to be a part of that kingdom and live according to His ways. We are also now able to be in God's presence. Because we have the mediator, Jesus Christ, who intercedes for us and declares us holy before our Father in heaven. We have been set apart. We have been made holy in Christ, allowing us to dwell in God's presence and now live. And last, to physically see. In eternity, we will do what Jesus says here in Matthew 5.8. We will physically see. See God with our eyes. We will see the glory of God the Father in heaven, and we will see him face to face through Jesus Christ because we will be face to face with our Savior. We will see God by seeing Jesus. As Paul says in Colossians 1.15, he, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. And this happens, Jesus says, through purity of heart. So let's look at what is meant by the heart first. And then we'll focus the rest of our time on what it means to be pure in heart. We need to understand what Jesus means by heart when he says it. And there's this consistency throughout scripture that when the heart is mentioned, it's talking about, an all-encompassing term 
referring to our inner self. The Bible uses heart as this all-encompassing term referring to the inner being or the inner man. It is where reactions and feelings come from, like joy and anger and sorrow and hate. Scripture ascribes our inclinations to the heart, our dispositions to the heart, our will, our intention, what gets our attention. All of this comes from the heart. It is the place of control of our thoughts and our conscience and the place of intellectual and moral and spiritual appetites. The heart is literally the inner controlling center of who we are, according to how Scripture describes it. John Owen, he says this of the heart, he says, the heart in Scripture is variously used, sometimes for the mind and understanding, sometimes for the will, sometimes for the affections, sometimes for the conscience, sometimes for the whole soul. Generally, it denotes the whole soul of a man and all the faculties of it, not absolutely, but as they are all, of, all one principle of moral operations, as they all concur in our doing of good and evil. This is what Scripture means by the heart is the all-encompassing center of who I am and who you are as individuals. And so what does it mean to be pure in heart? Well, to be pure is to be clean. To be pure is to be innocent. You see, along with teaching that the heart is the inner controlling center of who we are, Scripture teaches that our radical corruption from sin is connected with our heart. Meaning that the inner controlling center of who we are is corrupted. It is unclean in biblical terms. Acts 7.51 says, You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. Jeremiah 17.9 the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Matthew 15, 19 to 20, the words of Jesus, for out of the heart comes evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a person. Our hearts are unclean from birth. And they must be cleansed. They must be made pure. And so to be pure, we must understand, is first and foremost an initiating and completing work of God. Our hearts are unclean and we cannot clean them. We cannot purify them ourselves. God sent Jesus Christ for this work. Apart from Christ, our hearts remain unclean. But through Christ, we are cleansed and we are made pure. We must go through a heart renewal, which occurs from God, through Jesus Christ, in the power of the Spirit. God removes our heart of stone. Ezekiel eleven nineteen, I will give them one heart and a new spirit I will put within them. I will remove the heart of stone from their flesh and give them a heart of flesh. He removes our heart of stone, and then he creates in us a clean heart through the work of the Holy Spirit. As David cries out in Psalm 51:10, create in me a clean heart, O God, recognizing that it is only the Lord who can make our hearts 
clean. And then we may believe in Jesus Christ, Romans 10.10, for with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. And when we believe, we are cleansed by his blood. Our hearts are made new. They are made clean, 1 Peter 1.19, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb, without blemish or without a spot. And we are saved, being eternally purified with the end results of being able to see God. And so we must first have settled in our beings that a pure heart is the work of God. It is not the work of man. But then... Does that mean that we sit idly by and let God do his work? Does that mean that we have no responsibility at all? Absolutely not. I think of Peter's admonition to believers in 2 Peter 1.10. He says, therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. He says later on in 2 Peter 3.14, Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, all of the things that you will inherit through Christ, be diligent to be found in him without blemish, without spot, and at peace. Or I think of the words of Paul in Ephesians 5.1, Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. These are not words of people who sit idly by. Be more diligent to confirm your calling. Be diligent to be found in him without blemish or spot. Be imitators of God. And so we should say God makes us pure in Jesus Christ and sustains our purity through the power of the spirit that is within us. But we must walk in purity with the spirit. And so then, there is something that we must consider. For those who do not walk in purity, it becomes reasonable, a reasonable question to ask. Is it that you are struggling with what Paul was struggling and laments over in Romans 7? I know what I ought to do, but I don't do it. I know what is right, but my members are at war within me. Or you need to question whether you are indeed in Christ. Is it that you are stuck in sin? Is it that you are struggling? Is it that there is something in your life that is hidden, that is unknown to others, that is impure before the Lord and you have not dealt with it? Or is it that you are indeed not in Christ? We are to walk in purity of heart. So I want to end very practically, and I want to consider just a couple of ways. How do we walk in purity of heart? There's so much that could be said here. I don't have time. But what is our role in this? And I think of first importance. And when I say first importance, that's not even really the right word. What I mean is first importance, all importance, through everything that I'm about to say, this is what matters. And it is having an intimate relationship with Jesus Christ. 
That is first and foremost, that is through everything. Walking purely in this world is not something that you can do in the flesh. It is not something that you are able to accomplish on your own. It is something that you accomplish through the Spirit. And so you must walk intimately with Christ by the Spirit, as Paul says. Walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Second, as we walk closely with Christ, as we walk intimately by the power of the Spirit, we must have a high standard in our lives for moral purity. We do not pursue a, a puffed up purity thinking that we're perfect, but we pursue a holiness in our lives that is rigorously intentional. Paul continues in Ephesians 5 after saying, be imitators of God. He says, sexual immorality and all impurity, covetousness must not be named among you as is proper among saints. Let there be no foolishness nor foolish talk nor crude joking, which are out of place. But instead, let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. These are serious words from Paul. Sexual immorality, impurity, Covetousness, filthiness, foolish talk, crude joking. He says, no, it's not that they can be sprinkled amongst you. He says, it must not be named amongst you. That's a rigorously high level of purity that Paul is calling for there. And that is why it is only through the Spirit that we can do it. Not in the flesh alone. I fear sometimes that followers of Christ would hear those things and say, I do none of those. I'm okay. And I think one of the areas that we struggle so much in as followers of Christ that, that I just want to tackle right now is let me ask you this. What do you entertain yourself with? If you sit there and you say, no, I'm not sexually immoral. There's no filthiness. There's no foolish talk. There's no crude joking. Well, Paul says it must not be among you. And so do you sit there and say, no, I do none of those things. But then what do you entertain yourself with? Do you entertain yourself with those very things? I truly believe there needs to be a revival of purity amongst followers of Christ in how we entertain ourselves and our entertainment patterns. And honestly, if you've been here for any amount of time, you've heard me go about this before. You know how passionate I feel about it. But John Piper, he, he lamented just last week on a, a podcast that I posted. He says, he says, Christians follow way too closely the rhythms of entertainment of the world. 
I, I don't know why Christians make excuses for entertainment. Like to sit there and say, I'm not sexually immoral, but I entertain myself with it on a screen. How are they different? That is being sexually immoral. But we think it's separate. There's not filthiness in my life, but I'm watching filthiness on a screen. That means you have filthiness in your life. We need to stop separating entertainment, thinking that it's a completely different area. It's all together. You know, Piper in this thing, he said, you cannot mourn over lost people if you're entertained by them and their lostness. I agree. And I would say you cannot stand in contrast to that which is sin while being entertained by sin. You can't stand in contrast to adultery while being entertained by adultery. How does that make sense? You can't stand in contrast to all of the sexual perversion that's happening while being entertained by sexual perversion. I truly believe this is one of those areas. It's, it, it seems like such a small thing, but it's a big thing. I think Christians are so stuck here. I think, I think we are being so conformed to the ways of the world in this area. And I, I honestly think it's one of those areas, if we could just figure out, we would start to see a revival. We would start to see just a hunger for God that isn't there if we could get out of these routines. And so I plead with you. Consider what you're entertaining yourself with. It is having way more effect on you than you think it is. I plead with you, honestly. Paul continues. He says in 2 Corinthians 6, 16-18, on this point, he says, What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will make my dwelling among them, and I will walk among them, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. Therefore, go out from their midst, separate from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing. Then I will welcome you, and I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. I mean, just think about that. What agreement does the temple of God have with idols? We have to have that in the forefront of our mind. And when Paul says this, he's not saying, go out from the world, go build a fence around your house so nobody can climb in, go get security cameras so no one can come near you. That's not what he's saying. Go and meet with the lost. Go and share Jesus with the people who do these things, but be separate in the sense that you don't do them yourself. We got to get back to this kind of thing as followers of Christ. James 1.27, James jumps on the same thing as Paul. He says, we are to keep ourselves unstained from the world. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, visit orphans and widows in their afflictions and keep yourself unstained from the world. Entertaining yourself with filth is not keeping yourself unstained from the world. I think James hits on an important dynamic in what he says here in verse 27 that is lacking in so many Christian lives. 
he pairs here. If you, if you don't notice, he pairs two things together. He pairs purity and remaining pure and remaining unstained from the world with action. Go and visit orphans. Go and visit widows and keep yourself unstained from the world. They're paired together. And I think so many Christians are worried about the effect that the world has that they hide out. There's this reality of being set apart, but not avoiding sinners. I think, honestly, what ends up happening is we remain in our homes so much, we don't pair these things together, action and purity, and what ends up happening is we have so much time on our hands that we fall into impurity. If we just did what James said, pair your action with purity, we wouldn't have time for impurity. We wouldn't have time to fall into these things because we would be doing what we're supposed to be doing. We would have our hands and our feet busy for the glory of Jesus Christ. Listen, when, I, when, I'm, when I'm saying these things, like, I'm preaching to me, too. I'm not sitting up here and giving you a hard time and not looking in the mirror. I've been looking in the mirror all week in regards to this as I've been preparing. But I, I do. I, I plead with you this morning. I, I think we, we need to get this right. We need to do better in this. Not just us. I mean followers of Christ in general. There needs to be a, a, a revival of a desire for holy purity, purity, personal purity in all aspects of life. I mean, all of us want to see God. And I don't, I don't want to wait until I'm in eternity to see God. I want to be as close to him as I can right now. I want to be intimately in connection with my Savior. I'm sure every single one of you do too. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we praise you that everything that we've been reading and everything that we've been unpacking in the Beatitudes comes from you. That you don't say, blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are those who mourn, blessed are those who who are pure in heart. You don't put these things out there and then leave us to our own devices. We, we, we come at these things understanding that it is your initiating work. It is your sustaining work. It is the power of your spirit that dwells within us that even allows us to walk in these things that you command us to walk in. Father, I pray that each person here would have this deep desire for personal holiness, would have this deep desire for personal purity, and Lord, that it wouldn't go the way of religion like the Pharisees where 
they kept themselves apart from sinners, where they made sure they wouldn't enter into places or do things that could possibly make them unclean. No, Lord, I pray that we would go to those places. It's in the heart that defiles a person. And so, Father, let us be less concerned about our surroundings and more concerned about what's in our hearts. Is there covetousness? Is there sexual immorality? Is there impurity? And Father, I pray that you would bring these things forward and deal with them in the power of your spirit. Father, I pray that you would give us hearts that would be willing to stare our sin in the face and deal with it. Father, especially the, the reality of what we entertain ourselves with. God, it is in all of life that we are called to be pure. Whether it's right before you're on a screen, there's no difference. God, remove that excuse from our minds that it's on a screen so it doesn't matter. Show us that it's utter foolishness. Father, there's so many other areas that, that we need your help. And Lord, I pray for those areas now. God, we long to see you. And we thank you that through Jesus Christ, through your spirit, we will. Help us to partner with you during this life to walk purely. And Father, help us to imitate what James refers to that action and purity need to be paired together. That when we are busy working and living and doing for this gospel, we won't have time for those things that get us caught up. Ultimately, Lord, we need a grander vision of your glory in our hearts. And so I pray, Lord, that you would give us a grander vision for the glory that is due to your name. I ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.